The district church exists to make disciples by interrupting people's lives with love because the gospel changes everything. To learn more about the district church and for ways to give to support resources like this, visit thedistrictchurch.com. We are in a sermon series called Ecclesia. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, Jesus says, you are Peter and upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And when we see Jesus say, upon this rock, I will build my church, the closest translation we have to that is Ecclesia. And it's used 112 times throughout the New Testament as the early New Testament church is being built and assembled. The, the, the early church that came after the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, I believe would make us very uncomfortable with their definition of together. Like the early church's sense of together, the early church's sense of being on mission together would make us very, very uncomfortable, right? I just imagine a bunch of close talkers and people that share the same toothbrushes, like a together type of people. And it would make us extremely uncomfortable for how they defined and how they saw that. And the reality is, is that we are communal creatures. We want to be and we need to be together, but there's something working against that. There's something working to remove that and remove us from one another. And as we saw last Sunday, if you were here, we looked at the ecclesia in the sense of gathered, the gathering church and how God's work was to get back to the garden where he created himself to be with his creation. Satan or the title of a devil would be an enemy that came in and brought separation in the life and death and work of Jesus has been to reunite that and to bring that back together. And so there is a sense of unity and community within the ecclesia that Jesus fights for and the spirit fights to bring us together and there's something opposing that. And we're going to look at that today. In this series, we're saying illuminate the church. Okay, so we're looking at the book of Ephesians. You can go ahead and grab your Bibles and go just to that spot in your Bible, we're looking at the book of Ephesians. We're not doing a line by line exegetical study of this book like we have done or will do in the future, but we are instead trying to get into the mind of the author who is Paul. Paul wrote this and we're trying to look and say, Paul, why do you say the things that you say? Why do you do the things that you do? It's very unique the way that Paul works and thinks. Why does he do that? And so through his uh, letters to the, the church in Ephesus, churches in Ephesus, um, we, we get to have this understanding of how we are supposed to function. And so we're looking at our church specifically throughout January and February and our culture, and, and, we're, and we're comparing it to what the ecclesia is and how Paul saw that to be. And today we're looking specifically at groups. Last week, we looked at the ages. As we look at the book of Ephesians, we see Paul uses this language talking about the ages. If you were not here last week, I'm sorry. It was, well, if you were here last week, I'm sorry, because it was a lot and it was fast. I understand that. Um, and today I hope to try to slow down, but it is so deep. This text is so rich and it is so good for us to, to sit and live under it for a little bit. Um, Paul talks about the ages and we have a slide that looks like, well, yeah, first let me define ecclesia. Ecclesia would be a gathering of believers. And that's what we looked at last week. And we also looked at this. This is how Paul um, sensed the ages to be. We'll see even in the text that we read today, Paul talks about the ages. Paul saw the ages sort of in this way where there is a present age that exists and within this present age are these things. There's sin and separation. 
And then what was expected to be an explosion of, of, of the, the kingdom coming, the new age coming, did not happen in the way that the Jewish people or that Paul saw. But actually what happened is with the coming of Jesus Christ also came the ushering in of the kingdom of God. And so it looks like this in some way. And where we would sit, us who believe in the life, death, burial, and resurrection would enter into this common ground, this overlapping reality that exists where the kingdom of God is coming. Fruit is being produced. The garden is growing, but yet we have not escaped the present age. So we're here. Does that make sense? That's how Paul saw it. And he talks about it in that way. And so we sit, the ecclesia sits in this middle ground to where we see, we experience parts of the kingdom of God, but yet we are still very much in this present age with sin and with separation and with the enemy at work. And what will usher in the final, the completion, the coming of the new heavens and the new earth is the final and ultimate return of Jesus Christ, right? So it's called an inaugurated eschatology is what this is taught to be. And so that was Paul's understanding. It's, it's good for us to get into Paul's mind because we might hear the ages and we might think of dinosaurs, or I don't know what you think, but Paul is talking about a present age and an age to come. And so it's good for us to see in the way that Paul sees. Another thing that Paul talks specifically about are powers. That's what we're gonna look at today. My job is to lead us into talking about rulers and authorities and powers and principalities that exist in the cosmic places, right? And then somehow attach that to groups. Because of them, you need to be in a group. So let's try that. The early, um, the early church saw it in that way, and Paul talks about it in this way, um, just as ages, with the ages, I, I don't know if I had a category for that. I don't know if I had a box for that in the way that Paul had it. Um, and that's just a, a, a short reflection of Paul's actual understanding. And in the same way, I don't know if I've ever had a really well-defined box for the powers that Paul talks about. I don't know what you think. You might hear Paul say something like rulers and authorities and powers and dominions in the cosmic places, and it just goes out of bounds of your mind and you don't know what to do with it. My hope is that we'd have some type of framework for it today. Let's first go to Ephesians chapter 1, 21. Ephesians chapter 1, 21. Go there. We're gonna look at three different verses throughout Ephesians where Paul introduces and gives us a placement and a framework for these powers. The first will be Ephesians chapter 1, 21. Okay, and I'll read it. 20 uh, completes itself by saying, it is Jesus who is seated, 21, far above all rule, all authority, all power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, here we see the ages, but in the age or the one to come, okay? So guys, please make notes. This is not a sermon where I'm just gonna give you a good word and make you feel good. We're studying the Bible and that takes participation. That takes you writing things down. That takes you going in with your intellect and trying to understand on your own. So let's do this together. Some things that I found and that we're talking about are rule, you see that? far above all rule, authority, and power, and dominion. Paul would describe these powers, you could write this down, active, present, participating. When Paul is thinking about power, he's thinking about active, he's thinking about present, and he's thinking about participating. That power is active, present, and participating in our lives, Paul says, in this age, in our present age. And what we see here is rule, authority, power, and dominion that exist apart from God's, okay? So he's not just talking about God. Paul is placing rule, authority, power, and dominion 
outside of Jesus's because Jesus is above that. God is above that. So there's this separate thing that exists Paul's talking about. Let's move to Ephesians 3.10. Ephesians 3.10. Move forward just a little bit. Ephesians 3.10 goes on to say this. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to those rulers and authorities. Again, Paul's talking about those rulers and authorities. He now gives us a placement. Where are they? In the heavenly places. Highlight that, underline that. Paul talks about the rulers and authorities existing in the heavenly places, okay? So now Paul gives us a location. I don't wanna go too deep and confuse us. Let's just say the heavenly places are outside of our natural reality. They're outside of our natural reality. That's where Paul is pointing to. We don't have to define that right now. But Paul has shown us the powers and he's given us a placement. They exist outside of our natural world. Ephesians 6, move on a little bit more. Ephesians 6, 11 through 12. Now Paul gets much more descriptive and shares a lot in this. But we're gonna focus on a few things. Ephesians 6, 11 through 12. It says, to put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against, again, the rulers, we see, against the authorities, highlight those, against the cosmic powers over this present, Paul would say present age, again, of darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul has identified to us these things that exist. He's told us where they are. And Paul is now saying they are not for you. They are against you, okay? They are against you. These rulers, these authorities, these powers, they're against us and they are working in this present age. Okay, Paul, you just said they weren't in this, but but Paul, you said they were in the heavenly places. How are they existing or working within my present reality? So they're outside of my natural reality, but yet they are at work within my natural reality. That's what Paul's telling us. It's clear, it is so clear in the way that Paul talks about this. We could spend days devouring this text and this is Paul's common communication. He is so comfortable to say these words and to talk in this way. And it shows us that he had a really solid category. He had a really solid framework for what these things were and how they existed. And we remember, as we talked about last week, about Paul's apocalypse. Paul had an apocalypse, the scripture calls it, on the road to Damascus. That's a a coming from death to life, a, a revealing, a revelation of knowledge. And that was revelation of Jesus. That was Paul's apocalypse. And so when we're thinking about this and we're trying to say, Paul, why do you say what you say? Why do you do what you do? How do you see the things that you see? It's very important for us as we study the text to try to understand Paul. And we look at Paul from the form of a new creation, That revelation had brought about new life and Paul was a new creation. So we understand it's the spirit of God working in Paul, but there's another side. We have to look at Paul's experiences and Paul's life. We did that last week. What do you remember about Paul? If you were here, he was educated. He was a smart man and he was educated on the Hebrew teaching, specifically the Hebrew Bible, specifically the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. And so if we're trying to get into the, the mind of Paul, well, let's go back a little bit and let's, let's sort of look at where Paul's education came from. Let's look at Genesis. Let's go to Genesis chapter one. I told you we we're studying the Bible today. Let's go to Genesis chapter one together. Genesis chapter one. 
in Genesis, okay, follow with me. This is a lot, I know. In Genesis, let's try to understand Paul's education and what Paul learned. Paul knew this. In Genesis, there was the beginning. Who existed in the beginning? God existed in the beginning, okay? And before there was anything that was created, there was God. And if we know uh, 1 John chapter 1, verse five, it says that, in, that he is the light, and in him is no darkness at all, okay? So God is the light. God is the possessor of all light. We find ourselves in Genesis 1, 16 through 18. Genesis chapter 1, 16 through 18. And I'll read it. And it says, and God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw it was good. Paul's talking about ruling. Paul's talking about authority. Well, hold on. God was the ruler. God was the creator. What did God just do? He gave rule to something that he created. But God just, God just gave ruling, God gave authority to something he created. This took place on day four of creation. And what it is doing is it is setting up a structure for, God, for how God will delegate his powers and his rule to other parts of his creation. We'll see this continued both in the heavens and both on earth. And we still call this a power today, right? So God had the power of light. God then created what would be the sun, to give light upon the earth, right? And we still call that power very much. The sun creates solar power. It has 44 quadrillion watts of power. It's photosynthesis, it's heat, right? It's the, it's the Greek God, Helios. It has always been seen as a power. And Paul knew that. Paul saw it, saw it in that way. Move to Genesis 1, uh, 26 through 28. Let's look at that just a little bit further. And we'll see this continued. We'll see this giving of rule, giving of power and authority from God. Um, we could call it administering, God administering or expressing his power through his creation, specifically Adam and Eve. Genesis 1, 26 through 28 says, let us make man in our likeness and let's give them dominion. It goes on to say, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heaven and every living thing that moves on earth. Now, up until this point, who had the job to fill the earth? Follow with me. Who was filling the earth? God was doing it. Who was subduing? Who was maintaining all of that? Who was ruling over it? God was. God had dominion over everything and he did not forfeit his dominion. God did not come to a place to say, I've done all I wanna do and I'm going to retire. I'm stopping, I'm done. Adam, you take over. That's not what happened. But God brought his creation into his rule, into his expression of dominion and authority. We have to see this. Are you following? I know it's a lot, but it's so important for us to see and to gain Paul's eyes. God had the expression of power and he used his creation to do that. Adam and Eve were not the curators of that power. That power did not belong to them. Right? I imagine Adam probably watched God rule over his creation. Adam was with God and he probably saw God maintaining his creation. And then God comes to Adam and says, it's your turn. I would run. I would say, no, sir, it's not. But Adam trusted God and he took on that role. And there, there this administration and, 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 and this expression of God's power started to be something that, that 
his creation began to do. So Paul saw these powers active and existing in this present age on earth, expressed through dynamics like light, law, justice, fertility. And then as we see in Ephesians, Paul sees specific created beings existing outside of our natural realm, accusers, characters, um, angels, demons, those with rule and authority actively participating in this present age, but existing in the heavenly places. I know that's a lot. That's how Paul saw it. He saw a power that existed here on earth, but also a rule that existed outside. So we see that in Paul's education. Let's think for a moment of Paul's experiences. Where where was Paul a citizen of? Rome. Paul was a Roman citizen. So let's think for a moment about his context and his worldview because it helps us understand how he uses and why he uses this language. Paul's picture of rulers or powers that are both earthly and cosmic was in line with how the Romans imagined themselves. This was a time where there was no secular space and nothing was spiritual. Uh, I'm sorry, everything was spiritual. There was nothing apart from spiritual. Uh, Everything in the Roman empire was attached to spiritual things and spiritual natures. Um, Everything that was tangible and visible was attached to the spiritual realm. The Romans believed their society, including their politics, their arts, their commerce, their social order, everything depended on the relationship that they obtained with their gods. That's what they believed. Um, A claim that Roman gods were false was equivalent to a claim that Rome's authority itself was illegitimate. And so this was a heavy polytheistic time, we know. There was many gods that were worshiped throughout this time. So when Paul thought about powers, he was not, he was not only thinking about these mythical gods that were being falsely worshiped, but he was thinking about these earthly powers as well. He was thinking about Caiaphas, the high priest that condemned Jesus. He was thinking about Pontius Pilate, the rule and the authority of the Roman empire. If Paul was here today, as he talks about powers expressed, he would be talking about the White House, the Queen of England, the CCP, the Kremlin. That's what Paul saw when he talked about powers. And while we are no longer living in this polytheistic age um, of worshiping many mythical gods, we've actually ended up on the complete other side of the spectrum, where in contrary to Paul's experiences and to Paul's life, instead of living in a polytheistic time, we live in an atheistic time with no God, with no attachment to spiritual realm. And so we could look and say, yes, it is good that we do not worship Helios, the God of sun, the God of light. Instead, we have nothing to attach that to. And we, we would not say that as Christians, as believers, we would sit here and we would, we would say that we, we might not live in that way, but that's the way that our world functions in a very atheistic or atheist is what the word derives from it, an atheist way. Our culture presses on us a very deep sense of nothingness. There's nothing there. There's nothing there. You fill in the blank. What do you want there to be? And that's what exists. And and that's not true. And that's not the way that Paul saw it. And this is no accident. Let me tell you, there is no accident that we live in a deeply atheistic or atheist culture. It is no accident. And that's true because we know our enemy fights in the dark, doesn't he? Mm. He loves the dark. We have an enemy who fights in the dark. 
He wants our minds to be foggy and tired and our eyes to be covered. And so church, let me press you into this. Stay in the light. Stay in the light. You have an enemy who fights in the dark. Write it down if you want it. Stay in the dark. Seek the illumination of your mind. Seek truth. Don't hide things. Don't cover things up. Let me say that again. Don't hide things and do not cover things up. That is not the light. That's putting them in the dark. That's not what God wants. And that's not the way that God works. We're communal creatures and not only do we need to be in the light, we need others in the light fighting with us. We need others' eyes at times showing us the things that we do not see. You need a church. You need a gospel community of people standing around you. Men, you need men. Women, you need women. The church, we need all of it. And so we have to see it in that way. Let me, let me sum all of this up. Let me sort of move us into a section and sum all of it up by saying this. This is what Paul saw. If, if we wanted to, I, I would not be so much to say dumb it down, but to place it into a, a smaller category. Paul saw the human condition was not brought about or limited to poor behaviors and actions brought about, brought about by sin. Paul saw that the human condition, where we are, why we do the things that we do was not brought about or limited to poor behaviors in result of our sin. You understand that? He saw it more than that. Paul saw that there was more than people doing stupid things, leading them to bad places. He saw that it was more than that. And when we see it in that way as well, we see that Jesus's death does more than saving us from our poor decisions and actions and behaviors brought about by sin. You tracking with me, right? Jesus did not come and die so that you would not do a dumb thing. That's dumb. It's a dumb thing to say. That's not what he came for. And so we have to see that the point of the point of all of this is not so that we would wake up and enter into another day hoping that we would not do something bad. The point is not so that we would wake up and have some type of ability not to enter into an affair, not to hurt somebody, not to hurt ourselves. We have to see there is war at hand. You know what's a part of that war? Your soul, your eternity, life and death. Dumb things are dumb things and they'll always be. And it's a part of what we do. I have asked anyone who has known me for any bit of time. I have done dumb things, a lot of them. Praise God, Jesus saves me and calls me out of that. But that's not the whole point of it. When he hung on that cross, there was rulers and dominions and authorities and powers that were being defeated. Not your dumb things, not your bad thoughts. It's more than that. And so we have to see it in the way that Paul does it, that, that there is a war waging in this and it matters that there is an enemy of God who created you and he wants you. And he wants you apart from God and he wants you dead and he wants dead things for you. Maybe you're not happy. Maybe you don't have joy because the enemy doesn't want it and he's winning. Maybe you don't have a good marriage because the enemy doesn't want you to have a good marriage and he's winning. We don't love your job because the enemy doesn't want you to love your job and he's winning. You don't come to church because the enemy doesn't want you here and he's winning. You don't give your time. You don't give your finances. You don't give of anything because the enemy does not want you here, wants you doing that and he's winning. We have to see it so much greater than the things that we can touch and feel. 
And so let's go further and talk more about that. Let's talk about what is in contradiction um, to God. If, we, if Paul saw it in this way, that there were other rulers and authorities, if these other things existed and they were in contradiction to God, his power and his rule and his authority, what are they? And so in, in, in breaking down the text, we slightly begin to understand Paul's thinking and what Paul means here when he says powers. So again, Paul would see these powers to be dynamics established in and through created things, but also characters and accusers, demons, principalities that exist in the heavenly places outside of our natural world. And he goes on to say that there is a misuse of all of this. There's a misuse in Ephesians 6, 11, what we read. Crazy. I don't know if you believe that. I don't know if you look at the world around us and think there's a misuse of any bit of God's design. That would be crazy. Well, it, it is. And Paul says that it's not the people. There's people that exist in this, but it's not the people. It's outside of our natural world, working within God's extension of power to bring about corruption. I'll say that again. It's not just the people, but it exists outside of our natural world, working to bring corruption within God's extension of power. And these powers are working in very, very specific ways within our world. Let's start to talk about that. These powers are working in very specific ways within our world. Paul saw it, and I think we will see it also if we study the text in that way. Within the ecclesia, there's unity. Remember that. Remember one of the key verses for us in this time is that Ephesians 1.10, God is working to unite all things in heaven and on earth unto himself. Our God is a God of unity. Remember that. If you're walking in the Lord, he's not, he's not pulling you apart from people. If it's being cut off, it's sin that's being cut off. God is a God of unity and he unites us to himself. Okay, we have to remember that. And so what would Satan be doing? He'd be working to bring disunity. He'd be working to bring separation. He works to um, take apart the sons and daughters from the father. He works to take the family apart, to dismantle that and the father being God. So we can expect that and we find Satan doing just that. Let's go to Galatians 3.28. Galatians 3.28. This is another letter that Paul wrote, Galatians 3.28. I'll give you just a moment and then I'll read it. It's a short verse, but it is massive when we are looking at the powers and the activity of the powers working in our present age. Galatians 3.28 says this, there is neither Jew nor Greek, There's neither slave nor free. There is no male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Paul is again telling us you're one. There's unity. You're brought together. I don't know what was going on in Paul's world that would make him call out these three specific things, but it blows my mind. It blows my mind. Here we are some 1,960 something years after Paul's life and nothing's changed. Nothing has changed. Paul points out three distinct things. You could write this down. Ethnicity, socioeconomic class, and gender. Ethnicity, socioeconomic class, and gender. Paul says Jew or Greek. That's race. That's ethnicity. Paul says slave or free. That's socioeconomic class. Paul says male or female, and we know that to be gender. What does that look like today? If Paul was standing in this room, what would he say? He might say Jew or Greek, and we might hear race, black, white, Hispanic, Jewish, and Palestinian, black lives matter, blue lives matter. 
division from ethnicity, slave or free, and we see the divide and tax the rich, defund the police, they're immigrants, social and systematic structures of lower, middle, and upper class. Paul would say male or female, we say LGBTQ+. No different. I have no clue what was going on in Paul's world, but it's obvious that these powers that are at work are pretty tired and they're working within the same things that we see in our world today. Now, this is not me standing on any side of the aisle throwing stones. That's not what I'm trying to do. I think there are great things that can exist in the working of all of these titles. But what Paul is saying here is he's showing us how the enemy opens a box. He opens a box and he puts some things inside of it that might entice us. And so we look inside of the box and we say, I like that, I'm gonna hop in there. And we sit inside of that box and burn down everything outside of it. And Paul says, you're wrong, that's not the fight. What you have done if you, is you, you have surrendered your ultimate identity as being one in Christ, you've grabbed onto a lesser identity and you're burning everything down around it and you're wrong. Paul says, it's not the people. Is there something greater at work and we're not seeing it? And the greater thing is that you are one united in Christ. It is foolish for us to step into the arena and begin fighting a fight. When Paul is screaming at us, you're not gonna win. You're fighting the wrong thing and you're not going to win. It's not going to work. And furthermore, it's ridiculous for us to think that we can fix it. Let me say again, I think there is great work that can be done in all of these titles. There's great things that can come. But when we see that as the war, we're wrong. We're wrong. Paul says there's something greater than that. There's something way greater than that. So it's foolish for us to believe in this way of self-sufficiency, not, even, not, not only believing that we can enter into this war and that we can win it, but to believe that you have everything you need to be who you were created to be and do what you were made to do. You hear that? And it's foolish to, for us to believe that we, can, that we can fight in this war and win it. And furthermore, personally, that you have everything you need. You are self-sufficient. You have everything you need to be who you were made to be and do what you were designed to do. That's a lie. That's a lie. You are not enough. You are not enough. And I don't say that in a way to hurt you. I don't say that in a way to break you down. I am not enough. I need help. I need help. You need help. Don't look at me standing on this stage screaming these things from God's word and think that I do not need I need, I'm in deep, deep need. We need to be taught. We need to be encouraged. We need to be warned. We need to be strengthened. We need to be forgiven. We need to be healed. We need to be restored. We need counseling. We need to be loved, we need to be rebuked, and we need to be delivered, all of which are things that we cannot provide for ourselves. You hear that? Paul David Tripp says human self-sufficiently, that human self-sufficiency is a lie, and we buy it and spend a lot of money on it. We're not enough. I'm not enough. 
And there is a great power, Paul is saying, there's this great power that is working against us. See it, know what it is, know when it is at work, know where it is at, because it's real. It's very real. We like to believe just because we are in this world where we cannot touch and see it or uh, uh, even feel it, that it is non-existent, that it does not exist, and that's not the case. But there is hope, 2 Corinthians 12, 9, just quickly. He said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. There's a beautiful thing that happens within the ecclesia, and it looks like Ephesians 4. You can go there. Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. So Paul saw this so clearly. Paul saw it so clearly as if he could reach out and touch these powers, touch these principles. He had, he had such a good description and comfortability in talking through them. He saw it in such a reality and he comprehends and explains them with no fear. He had no fear as he teaches this. And if we look at all of these uh, verses in Ephesians, we can fail to see it if we just focus on the powers. We can fail to see that lying within every verse, every single verse that we study in Ephesians where we see these powers, lying within them, there's an overcomer, there's a ruler, and there is authority, there is a power that is greater than any other. And he's not a principality, he's a king. And he's seated far above. In Ephesians 1, 20, 21, where it was introduced to us, it begins with saying Jesus is the ruler and he is above any other power. Ephesians 3.10, we looked at, it shows us how God uses the church to express his manifold wisdom and power to those in the heavenly places. Ephesians 6 tells us about the schemes of the enemy and his workings within these powers, but it points to the armor of God, the spirit of God, and a means to tap into a stronger power. All of these verses, we cannot leave out Jesus. We cannot focus on the power because we have an overcomer. We have a greater authority. In any of this, thank you, thank you. Any of this that exists in this war, any of it is God. My gosh, does that mean anything? Your soul, there's a war against your soul. There's death and there's life and it is eternal. And they know that. And it is working within our life, in our reality, in our realm right now. Ephesians 4, 1 through 6 is a beautiful passage as we survey this. I love how Paul says this. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. He says, in light of all this, I know it exists. I know it's there. But walk, keep going. And do it with humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There's one body. There's one, here's our God of unity at work again. There's one body. There's one spirit. Just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and there's one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. We need, we need, man, we need, because we don't see it clearly. We don't always see it in the way that it needs to be seen. And one of the things we need is unity, community, doing life with others, expressing these things in Ephesians 4, doing life in a way, expressing humility. I hope you have that in your Bible. 
because that's not a natural expression on a battlefield to bring about humility, to bring about gentleness, to bring about patience and bearing with one another and love growing in and expressing unity. And in one of the beautiful ways that we get to do that, one of the great ways that we see God at work as we talk about the administering of God's power and rule and authority through dynamics and created beings, one of the most beautiful ways that he expresses his power is through people. One of the most beautiful ways God expresses his power is through his people. And again, we need that. I need that. I need that. Groups would be what we would consider something where some churches have Sunday night or Wednesday gatherings. We go into homes with disciples, with communities, with families of disciples, and we do stuff together. We study the Bible together. We eat food together. And in those times, man, I am so in need, and you are. And I need to hear stories of God's faithfulness. I need to see restoration taking place. I have prayers that I have been asking God to answer. And, and, and ultimately in my prayers, I am wanting to see more of God. And I might not see God in my prayers yet, but I could see him in yours. He's answering your prayers. He's working. And we need to see that from one another, especially when we might not be seeing it in front of us. We need restoration. I need friends. I need friends. You need friends. It's a reality. My children need to see men and women chasing after Jesus who look differently and do it differently than their mommy and daddy does. They need to see that. Men without children running after Jesus. Women without children chasing after Jesus. We need to see that in one another. We need to be near to the Lord and we need to be near to one another. And so as we respond, I would ask you, come close, come close. Um, this is not the best part of the district church. It gets way better than this. This is not the best part of the kingdom of God. It's gathering with disciples in a room together. It gets way better. And we'll see that fully when Jesus comes back to prove that to us. But we get to see glimpses of it today. And I tell you, I have seen it. I've tasted it. And it is so much more than some pretty songs from an Australian tongue. As beautiful as it is, it gets better. I've seen the beauty of the church when my wife and I are sitting in the ER after we lost a child. We, we sat on Robin's floor. We sat on Robin's floor for days mourning the loss of Tim. We saw the beauty of the local church when I have stood with men who have begged God to give them a wife and she came and I got to stand there and unite these two in marriage. When I've walked with couples who have begged God to use them to grow a family and they cried, we cried with them. And then God would be so gracious to bring us to that child's birthday party. To see them dedicated amongst the people who prayed and begged for them. I have seen the beauty of the church and it is so worth it to press in. And so I don't know where you are, but you have a need. And I'm not telling you that every need is gonna be met, 
by the church, but one day every need will be met in our Lord and in our Savior, and he might just do that today through his ecclesia. Would you stand? And I'm gonna pray for us. Um, We're gonna have some action steps. Let me tell you something that kills self-sufficiency. Communion, that's what we're talking about. And so we have a great opportunity to partake in communion today. Communion kills self-sufficiency. When we come to the table, as believers, we come to the table and when we reach for the body that was broken for us and when we reach for the blood that was poured out for us, we are forced to say, I could not do that. I cannot be my savior and I need a savior. And so we get to express that in communion today. We're gonna pray, um, not just my prayer, but I hope that you continue in prayer. We have a few minutes to continue. I think I went way long again and I'm gonna get in trouble. I'm sorry, but um, I'm gonna pray and then we get a chance to respond. Uh, We can continue to pray. The band's gonna sing. Communion is here in the front and it's in the middle of the room. So let me me pray and then we'll have a moment to respond. We have an action step as well, where again, we get to sign up for groups. Today, you get to be a part of a deeper community of God. And so you could do that through signing up for groups. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for this. Thank you for uh, the administering, the expression of your authority, of your, of your will, of your power. And it's a beautiful thing, God. It is a beautiful thing. So thank you that we can see it and experience it and that we can be a part of it. God, would we not be fools to see when it is used wrong? It would be foolish for us to look at our world and believe that there is not misuse of power and authority existing now. So would we see it in the way that Paul did? Would we not live or fight in the dark? But would you illuminate our minds to see your purpose and design for us? And would we press in? Would we do something about it, God? Not going out and burning the world down or fighting with others, but would we press into you, the one who does have authority, the one who does have all power. And as we have seen, and as we know, as you have come and already conquered death, that you will come again. And so we trust in you. We lean into you, God. I pray for some who need to choose you today for the first time that they would say yes to Jesus. They surrender their life and their will and their self-sufficiency to a God who can and who longs to carry and walk with us. We love you. We thank you for this time. In your name we pray, amen. To learn more about the District Church and for ways to give to further resources like this, visit thedistrictchurch.com.